0: All right, so welcome to The Jig Is Up. Today, I'm joined by Patrick Harriet, who is running for election in Victoria. Um, so welcome, Patrick. Welcome to Jig Is Up. Thanks for having me, Darcy. Uh, yeah. Right on. Um, so you're running for election and uh, just kind of wanted to, you know, give you the opportunity to let people know why you're running and, and what your what your goals are for running.
1: Well, I mean, really, it's, it's always been about Métis people. It's been about uh, grassroots voice and... Uh, and seeing the things that matter to Métis people uh, be advocated for on the provincial level, um, <clears throat> you know, when I was when I was first uh, really getting into um, uh, donating my time to the community, I was looking around. And I said, "Well, you know, why don't we have more cultural events?" And I was told, "Well, there's no money for cultural events." You know, and and after five years of working towards it. Uh, you know there was in fact money for for rendezvous that we haven't had on the island for the last 10 years and so we put on two back-to-back rendezvous with all the great uh, volunteers in my community and then I said well what about Machif? you know we need to know our language and uh, found out that there was really nothing going on especially in British Columbia for Machif. so uh, you know with the help of a bunch of my community uh, volunteers we found some money from Machif and started some lessons and Then I found out that, well, there really isn't any material for lessons. So I started uh, reaching out to different uh, uh, Mm Machif teachers and um, got Norman Fleury uh, that came out to our our community and really inspired the community to learn Machif. And then reached out to uh, Heather Soder, who uh, who uh, teaches at the University of Manitoba. And and uh, with some additional funding that we found, now we have Machif lessons for 40 community members until 2022. So these things are possible. It's just about having the will to look where the possibilities are.
0: So how did you, uh, like, obviously this stuff is possible. Like you were saying, um, is it just that you found a, the, the kind of the right group of people that was willing to put the time in, or I guess, what do you account your success to? Um, did you have support from, a, mm-hmm. you know, I guess government, or how did you find that? Well, I, I wouldn't
1: say, uh, um, support from government, necessarily. I mean, uh, only support in that uh, you know we found uh, government funds. Um, so it was about finding people that were passionate about culture, passionate about language, uh, because really the majority of what happens in communities is volunteer driven. So if people uh, you know really have a passion to see these things happen, then uh, finding the resources is just a matter of perseverance because they are out there. it's It's prioritization of
0: time, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you've, uh, you've been working cause I, I got to know you a few years ago um, and you've been working quite hard on this for how long, about five years you said? Well, I mean, I've been on uh, my community board for nine.
1: Oh uh, wow. The president for last four. Um, but as far as the rendezvous goes, uh, you know, I've been working on that for about five or maybe even six is when the, the first little inklings uh, were happening. Yeah. Um, but also I got passionate about um, good governance, really. That's, mm. that's something that means a lot to me. And so for the last four years at our governing assemblies, I've been putting, you know, resolution after resolution forward to have better inclusion, to have transparency. Uh, and I'm super proud of this last one that I did, which was I put forward a um, resolution uh, of a declaration of self-government. Oh, which, uh, which passed um, without amendment unanimously. Wow. Um, because I was looking at the, at the Tri-Council, uh, you know, the Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Ontario um, framework agreements for self-government, and I saw sort of the benchmarks that were laid out um, sort of by government for official recognition and realized that here in BC, we already met those. We have a constitution, we have a dispute resolution body, which is our Senate, we have most of those things, but what we didn't have was an actual mandate, like an explicit mandate from the citizens. So I crafted that, and uh, it should be coming to our AGM uh, this year, although that's kind of controversial because of COVID. So mm. uh, it happening in person, and uh, there's a lot of people that are wondering if there's a way that we can um, do it virtually, and, and Major Nation of Ontario seems to be doing that, so I don't see why we can't as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then I guess at the AGM, that's where you're... It's decided that that's where the vote is and and what position are you running for um, with the with the organization?
1: Regional director for Vancouver Island and Pell River. Oh okay. so there's seven regional directors because we have seven regions and then we have four uh, provincial seats which is the president, vice president, women's chair, and youth chair.
0: Oh okay okay and then so I guess how has the response been from outside of I guess your local area? as to what you guys are doing or are, um, are other locals kind of seeing what you're doing and going, Hey, let's maybe, maybe we can do that in our area or. Well, I, I have had a lot of uh,
1: sort of uh, positive feedback from uh, Métis people around BC that are uh, looking at our Facebook group and going, wow, you know, I kind of wish I could partake in this or that. Um, I, I really do have a wonderful board um, that I've been uh, just trying to assist in any way that I can on the things that they're passionate about. You know, it's about giving uh, the tools that I can to the people that that have the the, the drive and the passion to see it happen. Because uh, to have a successful program, what I found is you need a champion. You need someone that's going to see it through. Uh, I, I like to call them shepherds almost, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we have an amazing women's circle that is really well attended. And, uh, uh, well, before COVID, we had, you know, weekly jigging lessons. We had beating wow. circles. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, over the last four years, our community has just blossomed, and I'm hoping to uh, to take these things that that matter to my community, and and I think that they probably matter to a lot of other communities. And listening to what what they want to prioritize, and finding the tools to enable them to do it.
0: So, when you're looking at this, you're coming to it. Um, it seems like you're coming to it very much from a cultural first perspective, as opposed to say a political <clears throat> first. Um, is that kind of the mentality you find with you and everybody else involved in these, these, um, you know, wins? Well, <clears throat> it,
1: there, there's a saying that actually kind of uh, echoes in my mind. It's kind of strange, but it's a, uh, it's a saying from Pierre um, uh, Elliott Trudeau. Um, and that is, um, you know, how can you come and talk to me about rights if you're not practicing your culture, if you're not practicing your language then you've been absorbed into the dominant society so how can you talk to me about rights and that, that really echoed in my mind where who, who are we as a people if we don't pra- practice our culture if we're not going to learn at least how to introduce ourselves in a traditional protocol fashion in our language so that's what I'm really passionate about but really it's 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 both things we, we need political advocacy and I just wasn't finding that um, from MNBC in the last four years frankly um, like for instance our language program um, we're being discriminated against as Métis people here in British Columbia from the First People's Cultural Council. And it's not their fault, but it's because of the uh, legislation that created them. We need advocacy to change just a couple of words so that we can access that language revitalization money, that $50 million that was announced a couple of years ago, so that we can continue to, uh, to fund Machif and, and to have opportunities for people all across British
0: Columbia to learn our language. Wow, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, because um, I find that too with a lot of like health programs and stuff from the federal government, it's uh, specific to First Nation and Inuit, mm. um, leaving out Métis to go with programs that are available basically to the general Canadian. Um, so is that kind of the same thing that you're mm. looking at there? Is
1: Well, I, absolutely. Um, so MNBC now has a, a new CEO and uh, he's been doing amazing things just in the last month and a half. Uh, he's really gotten us out there. He's the one that broke the story about, um, about discrimination in hospitals, um, about, um, you know, and, and it was actually particularly one of the hospitals in in my area where if an indigenous person came in, they would play a game of, uh, so what do you think uh, their blood alcohol level is? And, you know, they would try to, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, and that stuff is not surprising, but yet it's still, every time I hear it, it just like, it still wows me a little. Um, Even though you should be used to hearing it by now, but it's just crazy.
1: But yeah, as far as the discrimination goes, um, the the CEO uh, has also pointed out and made a uh, a large budget ask the first time ever, which I thought was amazing. Um, You know, he's pointing out, well, how much money goes towards uh, First Nations in British Columbia and how much goes towards uh, a third of all Indigenous people as represented in the census um, as Métis people. And it's it's ridiculous. You know, they they get ten, tens of millions of dollars and we get, you know, maybe a million? Yeah. Or they probably get about 60 million, I think. I forget exactly, exactly the numbers. But but there is an inequity. Yeah. And w- what I think we're in a really interesting time right now is East British Columbia became the first province to pass the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Mm-hmm. So in there, it, it talks about uh, Indigenous people being those listed under Section 35 of the Constitution of Canada, which is First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Yeah. And within that declaration, I'm not sure how much of a deep dig you've done, but it talks about the rights of, you know, culture, education, language. Absolutely. And so this is a, um, an amazing opportunity. It's probably the one um, legislation that, that's passed in British Columbia that's, that has the potential to do the most for Métis rights
0: ever in British Columbia. Wow. Um, so you, with the new, uh, you said CEO and uh, within the organization, so are they kind of more championing government to start changing some of these, uh, like you said, if they just change a few words in a policy, is that kind of what they're focusing on right now is trying to get those smaller, low hanging fruit things kind of fixed? Well, or? I,
1: I mean, I mean, because you know, that, like you said, the the, the low hanging fruit is sort of the, the easy wins. Uh, I think that that's, always appealing to government like yeah I, I've actually been part of um, uh, it's called the Victoria Urban Reconciliation Dialogue and okay. I'm on, on the steering committee and uh, I, I have been for the last two and a half years and it's basically looking at you know from an urban perspective because always urban indigenous people seem to be forgotten about it's a lot mm-hmm. of you know, status on reserve uh, especially here in British Columbia um, so this table was put together to look at well how can Reconciliation happen, like, you know, where does the rubber meet the road in an urban environment,
0: right? I, you know, I find that's a huge issue. I find such a disconnect between basically almost every government program and in urban Indigenous populations. And, you know, and I know the Canadian government now has the urban Indigenous peoples, like, um, grant funding programs. but the The program is so hard and there's so many people applying that it's so hard to get money out of it. Um, unless you're already kind of getting some money, but, um, yeah, it just seems to be a very overlooked thing in a lot of cases. And I find it ends up curtailing about, you know, a few small organizations trying to do little bits and pieces, but there's no real organization to say, okay, you know, like you're in Victoria. Okay. What can we do for the indigenous people in Victoria? Mm. Um, and I, I just find there's like, I have lots of ideas. I don't know if they're good or bad, but. I think if you know if there was more people coming together like a lot of these ideas would come to fruition a lot faster too
1: well and um you know just the the plain facts of it are that uh over 80 percent of indigenous people in british columbia are in urban environments yeah you know um either it's status off reserve non-status metis uh we're, we're in an urban environment and and where can we practice our culture? I mean, we're, we're very fortunate here in Victoria that we have a really good relationship with the Victoria, Urban, or Victoria Native Friendship Center. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're at that um, uh, reconciliation dialogue with us and municipalities and the provincial government and the federal government. Yeah. And, um, and, and through those dialogues, you know, now um, my community has input in the Vic PD um, strategic planning. And, you know, we're talking to municipalities, uh, they're asking us um, to, for input on, you know, um, long-term development strategies. So it, it really is moving forward. But um, I I really feel that MNBC could be doing more as sort of the big brother of, of communities to go to bat for us. Because I, I know that uh, all communities have interactions with, say, the school boards. Mm-hmm. And, and how come we have to sort of start from square one again with with our school boards and, you know, some have greater success than others. Like some put on culture camps, which are amazing, but yeah, others yeah. Are, are frozen out altogether from having any input with the um, targeted Aboriginal funding for our children. And that's just not right. We need a big brother to step in and go, Hey, wait a minute. No, no. We have a right to to be in there, to be consulted.
0: Well, that, and that's what is, I find it really frustrating about a lot of this too is you'll have really good success, like you say in one area, but then it doesn't translate to another area. And it's almost like, there's this invisible boundary where whatever happened there can't possibly work here. So we can just can't do that. But it's like, but we've had success. So even if you have to change it a little, why don't we try that at least? Um, and like you said, you need somebody to be championing that because I find especially things like school boards and, and health things like it seems there's always that federal provincial argument. Then there's the regional arguments. Like here in Alberta, we have Calgary board of education. So If you get some good program going with them, that doesn't mean it's going anywhere else. It's not going to Edmonton, not going to any other city, town. You almost have to go and start that fight over, like you said, right from the scratch. And it just seems really redundant and a waste of time. And that's what frustrates me a lot when I see these programs, because you'll see, a, I mean, I I know out there through a mutual friend of ours, they had a great cultural program within the school board. One of the school, a couple of school boards there, or districts. Um, but out here in Alberta, like we don't even look at what happens there and say, Hey, maybe we could do that, you know? Um, so it is frustrating because there's just that uneven inequities everywhere. And it's, as soon as you get a win here, it's like, it doesn't translate anywhere. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, um,
1: you know, uh, I, am co-chair of the, um, Aboriginal ad hoc committee for, um, the Victoria school district. Uh, and, and, you know, talks are going fairly well there. Um, and then um, my kids actually go to the uh, Francophone school here in Victoria. And there is a province-wide uh, Francophone school district because there's only sort of, you know, very few of them around the province. And it's so their they're own school district. And I'm on that committee as well. And let me tell you, their understanding of what Métis means when I, when I was first uh, on there, because um, I, I guess perhaps, you know, a lot of them come from Quebec. And their understanding of Métis or Métis is, is very different. So it'd be really nice if, uh, you know, once again, it's that whole political advocacy thing that um, that our provincial body should be doing. So how come there isn't core cultural competency, uh, like like the idea of a Métis 101 that uh, our community is continually doing with every partner that we that we uh, start relationships with? Is like no, Métis means this, you know. It's like there's an ethnogenesis. There's there's like um, it, it doesn't just mean mixed. And I know that uh, perhaps yeah. You know, that, that's a whole different subject.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that gets into a big, big, big I, I, area I, I of know. the hot debate. But um, but I understand what you're saying because I, I think um, in a lot of cases, I think if we were to come up with some standards, even you know setting aside that hot topic issue, but even some basic standards like um, there needs to be that core competency culturally.
1: Absolutely. But it
0: also has to be on a local level because the Métis from here are, are slightly different than here. And so you need, you can't just kind of brushstroke it and say, all Métis are this, even if we're just talking about, you know, the the Red River, you know, kind of Métis, um, you still can't brushstroke and say, well, they're all like this. that That's what Métis, that's the whole culture is just this. Um, so it, for me, it's, you have to have that culture. Like what does it mean to be Métis in Victoria and <laughs> in, in that area and that kind of thing? So it's, it's um, again, another frustration when you come up with these roadblocks of, they just, it seems like the the general consensus, let's just brush it as a broad stroke for everything and then we're good.
1: Well, yeah, that, that's a very good point. I mean, even when we were, um, you know, starting up our, our, um, our language uh, program a couple of years ago, it's like, okay, well, is it Southern Machif? Is it Northern Machif? Is it Cree Machif? Is it French? You know, like there's, there, there isn't just a Machif, right? You know, people and family groups spoke um, with different influences in different communities right you know you take you know Josh Morin for instance in his family um, that's completely well not completely different but that's definitely got its own flavor compared to uh, Norman Fleury and and uh, and his flavor of Machif, right
0: yeah absolutely
1: and yeah it's interesting that, that you would say sort of you know what does it mean to be Métis in Victoria because um, uh, something that happened just before COVID hit and uh, and it was such a wonderful thing and it makes me slightly sad that, that we're having to wait so long to, to do another one but we had um, our, our community sort of elders and knowledge keepers and leaders and um, g- get together in circle because we wanted to figure out, okay, well, our community, what does our community feel um, are sort of the hallmarks of who we are as a community of Métis people here? You know, what do we believe in? Where do we want to see our community grow? So we were looking at um, sort of doing our own um, envisioning of of how what the heart of our community is and where we want it to go in the future and it was really beautiful
0: oh that is amazing yeah absolutely and I think you know I love to see stuff like that I'm I'm so happy when I see communities doing that um and it's not a but like I know here in northern Alberta there's a few communities that split off and setting aside the divisionary concepts of that the idea that the community needs to take care of the community I think is a very valid and important part of Métis culture um, because it really truly is that way. I mean, when you, when you went into a community, you became part of that community. It was about making everybody succeed and everybody healthier, happier, flourishing, right? Mm. And um, <clears throat> you can debate tactics, like maybe the guys in Northern Alberta shouldn't have left the m and all that kind of, you can debate that, but the reality is, is I don't, I can't begrudge them for wanting to look after their communities. Mm -hmm. first and I think that's important across any you know across the country is it really should be community-based governance in in my opinion you know the community should be relating information up so like you said so you can take it to that bigger brother to go talk to somebody about the whole you know the whole of bc in your case but on a community level you still need that support to be to have the decision making and to have those kinds of conversations
1: well, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, something that uh, I really want to see is, is getting rid of the, the one size fits all. Because each community has has different people has different priorities. And already, um, you know, community volunteers and leadership are, are working on the things that are priorities for their community. And what I want to do is see, you know, when they say, hey, you know, we're having issues with our school board, so, you know, prioritizing, helping them with that, or if they want um, some kind of a, um, a revenue making uh, project, you know, having the, the capital corporation, help them out with that, help them out with, with um, a business plan, help them out with, with uh, some, some seed money, you know, like prioritizing healthy communities, because how can you have a healthy nation if you don't have healthy communities? And uh, like I said, one size fits all does not work. And also one and done programming doesn't work. We need to build We need to invest in our nation and get returns on that, as opposed to finding money, dispersing it like we money party. It's like no, let's let's build on what we get so that we can keep uh, growing, as opposed to just dispersing the
0: funds that we get. Well, and and I mean that leads to the whole like you know looking at the next seven generations. You want to build something now that maybe your great grandkids are still using. Absolutely, and and I think that's an important thing that is missed in when you get into a lot of political conversations, specifically. Um, because it did tends to boil down to basically where can we get government funding for this, 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 all these things. But it's not really having that focus to say we trust the communities enough to give them this much money to start building these programs on their own. It's it's almost like, well, because of the way the government has things and reporting on money, it's like you gotta have every dollar accounted for and, and Maybe some communities are ready, maybe they're not, but I do think that for sure you need to get rid of that one and done, the one fits size fits all. But I do think you can take your success, translate it somewhere else and say, well, let's, this worked for them, but let's change it a little. And then, Hey, it worked. Um,
1: Well, what I'd love to do is, um, you know, it seems like, you know, volunteers, um, they they do so much work. And what I'd love Mm -hmm. to see is, um, different communities sort of uh writing up the different programs that they've done successfully and writing you know how much money it took how many volunteer hours uh you know approximately of course and what kind of supplies and what was needed and uh, putting that in a binder of ideas and then that binder of ideas could go to each community and they can flip through and go hey you know what we we managed to get some funding for health or we managed to get some funding for this let's look and see what other communities have done oh this looks great if we just sort of change this or change that that'll fit our community perfectly you know that that kind of uh, mentorship that, that kind of um, peer learning I think is so valuable especially with volunteers that only have a certain number of hours right
0: absolutely and it is hard because I think volunteers a lot of times it ends up where the volunteers just end up burning out because exactly. there's so few people doing so much trying to do so much work um, because there is so much to do. I mean, just here in this conversation, we probably identified fifteen things that you know you could see improvements in, right? Um, but yeah, no, I think, and so I think, yeah, we, we need to move beyond just a mandating that. Well, if volunteers want to do it, great. But if not, I guess it doesn't get done. You like you said earlier, you need that champion, that uh, the person that just heard that along um, to keep the volunteers engaged and keep them from being overwhelmed and burned out and
1: well, and, and really listening, like having effective communication, like knowing what's going on in all the communities and what their struggles are and what their passions are. And then uh, if if MNBC has that, then they can be on the lookout and go, oh, hey, that community is doing this. Look, look, they need to, to uh, look at this grant because that would tie in exactly and that would boost them and give them the resources they need to be really successful in this thing that they're so good at and so passionate about,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely, and even creating a network where – Unless, um people can connect with people from other communities to see how they're been like that way, the, the, I guess the higher levels of, of governance in the MNBC, in this case, don't necessarily have to get into the nitty gritty details, but they can just literally be connecting communities with communities and people with people saying, you want to know about that program, you need to talk to these people. Well, um, that would it, be amazing.
1: Absolutely. And, and honestly, there hasn't really been, uh, opportunities created for that kind of uh, peer relationship and that mentorship. And what I would really like to say, and, you know, we used to have it, um, you know, we used to get together and uh, and have discussions at MNNN, um, nation Governing Assemblies and AGMs, but, but those times were shortened, shortened, shortened. And for instance, the last one was just all business. We didn't have uh, any time to get together and, and to sort of share or discuss a uh, education. Like I was saying about how, um, pretty much every community has a school board that they have a relationship with, and being able to talk to other communities about their relationships would be amazing uh, t- to help grow theirs, you know?
0: Absolutely. And then, and, and then that way, too, I mean, you start getting into well, now you start communicating on a community level, then it starts helping to open up. Well, maybe this school board is willing to talk to that school board, you know, if you can get contacts there. So maybe then it even doesn't even need to be the community as much as connecting those school boards together to see how they can do it, you know, through their language, through their understanding of budgets and whatever they need to do. Right. Oh, absolutely. We're fortunate here in Victoria to have um, a great uh, Aboriginal district
1: principal. Um, And, and well, actually we have, we have two of them. We're actually quite lucky here. Um, But, but uh, yeah. And, and for them to be able to talk to other um, people in the same position in other districts or, or to, uh, inform other districts about the successes that we've had here. So, so it can be, yeah, not just from the community, um, idea, but from the, from what's going on inside the districts as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so I think it's, I've always been kind of impressed with how you guys keep content kind of slowly moving forward on these things. Um, you know, I I stay up to date with you on Facebook a little bit and see what you guys are doing. And, and it, it has been, I've been really happy to see how you've just kind of steadily progressed And I'm sure you've had setbacks and speed bumps along the way. It's not been an easy road, but, um, but I have been, very impressive to see how far you guys have come, you know, in, in the time that I've known you. Um, so I guess moving forward with that when you're running is that you, you want to kind of continue that and take that to, like you said, another level where you start maybe reaching up to more communities to see that kind of success as well Is that kind of the mentality of running, I guess. Well, I, I mean, absolutely. I,
1: I think, uh, you know, we're not the only communities that have had successes, right? Like there's, there's successes in each and every one of the communities in this region and across the province. And I would like to have their successes uh, inform, you know, my community in Victoria and, and the other communities. So like, like I said, we, we need opportunities to, to dialogue and to exchange um, information on successes. But also I, I really haven't felt like the the resources of the provincial body have um, sort of lifted up uh, those communities. Like mm-hmm. y- you mentioned, the um, uh, urban programming for Indigenous peoples (UPIP), yeah, and sure. um, and and yeah, we are fortunate that MNBC uh, four years ago did negotiate some funds for each community every year. Um, so so that has been really helpful to have some seed money, and and boy, let me tell you that. Uh, at least in in my community and probably a lot of communities, uh, you know as long as um, a couple bucks are for some you know string and some some baling twine, we can make almost anything we can make a program run on a shoestring and and multiply that like a hundredfold uh, so, so that has been very helpful but but there's also other programs that you know i I see um, and really I, I only know about it because uh, i I love taking in information and I, and I research and I've seen. Uh, like like the housing money that the MNC negotiated um, I think three years ago or now or so. Um, so a portion of that has come to british columbia, and in the last three years, we've amassed like seventeen million dollars that is sitting in a bank account, and I think one point five million has gone out for uh, helping do some renovations for for elders that don't have, you know, um, reverse mortgages and those kind of things. So, you know, that is helpful for, I think about 75 elders, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's still $15 million sitting in that bank account. Wow. And and I've been talking to, uh, um, he's actually a a Métis person here in Victoria. Um, but he's, uh, part of, you know, the, the co-op housing, social housing, um, kind of crew and talking to him about how, when we build social housing, um you can you can leverage so many government programs and it, and if you did it right um you know you can leverage those programs and then you can have that that uh metis specific cultural social housing and keep that in the nation and solely pay like pay it off and then you could use those resources like they'd be in in the nation forever and so you could use those resources once they're paid off to start doing um subsidies for prescription medication for elders you know like there's there's ways that we can be building these resources as opposed to just sort of spending the money and then waiting with our handout for more money to spend as opposed to building our resources
0: absolutely and that was always something that uh, you know jason and i have talked about uh, probably on this podcast but also privately on our own um is the whole like concept of nation building not necessarily from um you know uh the nationalistic perspective, but just from a, a strengthening of culture, people, um, connections. Um, cause I find here in Alberta, a lot of communities are dis- very disconnected from each other. Um, so what happens in a different region doesn't even get mentioned to people in another region just because, eh, you know, um, so it's just, there's a lot of disconnection and I, I, I uh, I kind of totally forgot where I was going with this, but, um, but yeah, no, I think there's definitely an opportunity there. And I, I think the nice thing about what I, what I hear you're going to be doing when running for this position is trying to take those strengths in, from every community and where communities may be weaker, they may be stronger on other things. So let's, let's try to balance that out for everyone. Um, but yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's amazing. Just the nation-building concept of, of making things stronger for the future rather than, like you said, just one-off okay, we got some money. Let's, okay, now we're out of money. Let's wait for more money. Cause it doesn't build anything.
1: No, we need to invest in ourselves and then have yeah. returns eventually. And then yeah. those returns we reinvest. And then, like you said, the seven generation thing, like, are we still going to mm-hmm. in seven generations, be like twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the government to, to give us some cash so that we can have a, a rendezvous or are we, we going to do it ourselves? You know, we're, we're supposed yeah. to be able walk those that, that govern ourselves. So let's yeah. invest in ourselves.
0: Well, absolutely, and make yourselves a lot more independent. Like, make us independent from government, you know, programs. You know, I mean, those are great, but the long term is is those just fluctuate depending on who's in power. And sometimes there's more funding, sometimes there's less funding. So now we have language classes. Now we cut them out for four years, for four to ten years. Then we have them again. And so we need to. I've always felt we need to build things to where, yes, those that government money will help but we can also carry on these programs, uh, with our, within our own nation funded by our own nation because we've invested in businesses, we've invested in Métis people and, and things like that. So.
1: Well, I, I'll use uh, like, I actually think it's sort of a, it's a multi-pronged approach, right? Like that's, th- there, there's a whole bunch of fronts. I think, you know, there, there's, um, you know, local and provincial there's, there's uh, i I'll, I'll use an analogy, um, from, from Alberta, I guess, uh, uh, Alberta has been known to be sort of a, a boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust. Right. And, uh, you know, know, after the boom, during the bust, it's like, Oh, maybe we should have invested some of that money into, you know, a heritage fund or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. We need to advocate for, uh, equality in funding from government and we need to advocate for, um, you know, our, our, our rights. Um, Mm -hmm. But you're right, Um, in a lot of ways, depending on which way the wind blows with with the government of the day, uh, you know, it can be a pretty uh, steep climb and descent. So we need to take those things and invest in our nation during the good times. And then weather the storm like the the Harper years, (laughs) those were not good times for indigenous people, right? No.
0: No, and I think that's the thing. Is that the one thing that drives me also, I think drives a lot of people crazy within that nonprofit world of government programs and government grants, and is that you it, the money is so specifically allocated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've even seen grants where you're allowed to buy this, but not this, but you need that in order to make that function. You know what I mean? So it's just it's the, kind of the hypocr- no yeah exactly. So it's the hypocrisy of we're going to give you say, you know, $10,000 for a language program. But it also has to be based on these criteria and what we've laid out and what we say, and you have to account for all that. So there's no real sovereignty there. Mm. Whereas I, I, what I would prefer is for the government to say, we're going to give you 10000 for an, uh, a language program. Now, we want to report in, in a year saying you were successful. That's what we want. Well, we want it successful for your community as opposed to successful for what somebody in Ottawa decided based on some conversations they had with other people there. You mm. know what I mean? Or that kind of or a provincial grant that maybe was decided not by any Metis people, but it's for Metis people. You know what I mean? Because I find a lot of the indigenous grants are are like that where the reporting is so strict, you almost in a lot of them, although it's changing now, but in a lot of the grants you can't even pay honorariums. Mm. You know, you have to give gift cards or gas cards. And it's like but that's not how indigenous people work. So you're, you're kind of failing right from the get go, <laughs> you know?
1: Well, it, it is starting to change, um, you know, cause I've been doing grants for, uh, well, you know, not forever, but for long enough now that I have seen um, some of that loosening somewhat. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, th- there is nothing um, that compares to us having our own money to do our programs you know, and, and uh, having our own people look at what best practices are and learning from each other, learning from other provinces. Um, And yeah, I mean, I don't know if I want to dip into those waters of the, you know, Métis National Council dysfunction, but uh, boy, (laughs) we're not doing ourselves any favors right now. It's, uh, it's it's not a good scene, you know?
0: No, and I, I don't know what, I don't know if it's just 2020 and everything is just, let's just throw it all in the air and see what lands on its feet. But it just seems like everything kind of ramped up over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months of just division and di- more divisiveness between people. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I And we, we aren't doing ourselves any favors right now. I know that. Well, um, I mean, I,
1: I've been watching, like, I I, I absorb Métis uh, information and especially uh, politics and stuff through osmosis. I just, I just can't get enough of it. But, uh, you know, I, I've been seeing it. Uh, sort of coming towards a wall for for more than that. I, you know, I think this is sort of inevitable. I, I think the structure of the Métis National Council is, is antiquated. You know, those those bylaws. You know, I, I'm I'm a governance guy, right? Like, and, and looking at those bylaws, I just shake my head. Like, we, we need we need to come to the table again and and re-envision what a Métis nation looks like. You know,
0: absolutely, um, yeah. with
1: equality and uh, and equity. Um, because this whole like, you know, big brother, little brother situation where, um, you know, I, bec- you know, I was born in, in Winnipeg, right. And, uh, but in, in living out here, um, I feel like a second class Métis citizen because we only get half the funding, even though, uh, from what I understand, we have twice the number of registered citizens as Saskatchewan does because, you know, they, they had an issue with their, with their registry for yeah. quite some time. Right. So yeah, they absolutely. Start over again. Right. But.
0: Yeah, no, it is. It is weird, and I think it, in a lot of their just the, even the structure is set up. It's very discriminatory. I mean, what is it like? BC and Ontario never got never got as many votes in the MNC level as you know the three other provinces. And why is that? Like that that seems ridiculous. That doesn't seem like a democratic system to me.
1: Well, yeah, um, we get a third of the votes. You know, we get five yeah. votes, and and the Prairie provinces get fifteen. And if you look at those old old bylaws. It actually had, uh, measures in place that as, uh, Ontario and BC got their, their citizenship numbers up, they would gain more, um, votes, but that never came to pass.
0: Yeah. Well, and and even in the structure, a lot of the, like a lot of the things that I've seen as far as how, how you can even run for some of these positions is so restrictive. hmm. Um, with, I understand the idea, like in, in, for, as an example, there's, um, you know, you can only run for president if you've had this much time on, you know, a regional council and stuff. And I understand that. But what that does is it eliminates people from mm-hmm. from being able to get to that president's position if that's what they want to run for. Well, um, the- some people just don't have the resources to volunteer tons of time and and be part of boards and things like that. I mean, some people just are working to live, like, you know, barely scraping by kind of thing. So even if they wanted to help out, there's still those restrictions based on those old policies right yeah no i absolutely in fact
1: uh um you know i've been facing some some strange uh um discrimination myself where some people are saying well um you know you're you're not independently wealthy and retired so how do you have enough time to uh to do this position justice and i just think well i don't know i i created a language program i'm doing rendezvous i'm consulting with government about uh about undrip i mean I I'm doing the work guys. You know, it just seems like there's this, uh, percep- perception that, um, um, you know, you have to be old and retired in order to, uh, to be a Métis
0: politician. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. Or, or like you said, independently wealthy or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it's, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, obviously you have the time cause you, you're, been, you're able to do this. Um, and so I think, it's, I think it's important, too, that we recognize that the older generations like, um, you know, Clem and, and those people, they've been in those positions for decades. And so I think right now, even though there's a lot of kind of upheaval, I think my personal theory is perhaps some of it stems from the fact that we're going to have to see a change of the guard soon, where a lot of these, you know, <clears throat> leaders that are in these positions now almost have to leave because it's been too long. And so with that, you're going to bring in new people, younger people, new ideas, fresh thoughts. And I think that just makes everything kind of churn up and it churns up baby, brings the skeletons out of the closets and, you know. Well,
1: in in fact, you know, uh, uh, my town is like a university college town, right? It's Mm -hmm. also a apartment town. But, um, you know, in in speaking to young Métis people, um, there's a lot of them that, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, MNBC, they're like, eh. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, eh. Well, <laughs> like, well, you know, we don't feel like it. It really represents our worldview, like our values. Um, f- for instance, um, the Métis Nation of British Columbia just um, uh, petitioned for intervenor status on a uh, Supreme Court case about hunting rights uh, here in British Columbia. There's there's a, a fellow from a nation. Uh, they're in Washington State, but their traditional territory extended into the Kootenays, uh, You know before there was the medicine line that, that divided the United States and Canada. And so that it's about hunting rights. And in the submission for, um, um, intervener status, um, you know, that our current president, um, made an affidavit talking about, um, how Métis people are the, are the only ones that want intervener status that, that the Kootenays make up our traditional territory and and believe me there's so many young informed educated people that are shocked that we would we would just outright say that uh, the kootenays is our traditional territory um and and i know that uh, there's there's uh presidents in the kootenays that are also shocked because they have really good relations with the first nations out there and you know they weren't told that we were going to assert that the kootenays were our traditional territory yeah um and you know we have to be very careful you know we've been here a long time. but we haven't asserted any, you know, we haven't done a Pally case here,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and, you know, with with undrip on the horizon, like I, I don't see how this this forwards our our ends of having our our rights accommodated and recognized when we're basically going up against First Nations uh, in a confrontational manner, and, th- and that's why I think that uh, young people just just don't just don't see MNBC presenting. Um, Métis people well on their behalf. So
0: Absolutely, sense. yeah. We, I, you know, we see that here um, in Alberta. The um, I think it was, and it's got to be ten, fifteen years ago. Um, Métis were given full hunting rights throughout the province, and then, but it was kind of never consulted with any First Nation in the province. Hmm. So the Blackfoot Confederacy took it to court. It got shut down, and now it's a different program altogether. Now, but essentially everybody in Southern Alberta has no hunting rights because the government's afraid to open that, that talk up. And I've always said, why aren't these Métis leaders and organizations going to First Nations first to work these these issues out and then simply going to the government and saying, we've already worked it out. Here's what we're doing. So it's a rubber stamp from you and we're good. Like, Mm. and, and to me, it's it's kind of like a lot of these programs and stuff. When you say, you know, building, you got to build on things. It's, it's about kind of trying to find those loopholes where you're, you're not going outside the rules, but you're, you're pushing the rules to get what you need um, within a system that maybe is restrictive. Hmm. Um, you know what I mean? Like finding sources of funding, maybe from a non-traditional grant process program, but I, I think that's important to do and, and go outside those boundaries and say, well, let's start going to first nations first and dealing with that or, or our family first and then going to the government. Cause it's an easy win for them then. I mean, there's no fighting. Everybody's in agreement. And then the government gets to say, look what we did. Uh, but that's, that's my theory on it anyway.
1: Well, well, that's the thing. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately because we've had um, you know, high level political representation, Sort of set up a, a confrontational um, relationship with First Nations. There's a lot of relationship building to be done, um, and I, and I, and I think that that is probably one of the relations that we need to focus on the most is is sitting down and and speaking with with First Nations. Um, yeah, I, I mean with, with with the pipeline, I, I still remember seeing um, you know uh, the spokesperson for the for the Métis National Council, David Chartron, saying well, how come this one uh, first nation in Burnaby wants to shut down this pipeline? Um, you know, that's not, that's not helping any of us. Uh, you know, like Métis people want, want this pipeline. And I'm sitting here in Victoria going, ah, you know, <laughs> my, my community doesn't actually on the whole, you know, um, yeah. but that's, that's great that we're being that our spokesperson from Winnipeg is sort of speaking on our behalf here on, on the coast in Victoria. Yeah. You know, it's,
0: but, mm-hmm. and, and again, that's divisive language. It's divisive attitudes. Um, you know, we've documented many of those on the show here as well. And, and it's, it is too bad because I think, you know, it's this adversarial attitude. And I think, like you said earlier, the, the youth coming into these organizations are going, well, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want to fight with First Nations. Like, it's, I respect their land. It's their territory. And I don't want to fight with them. You know, I want to work with them. And I think that's where a lot of these changes will happen as we see new leadership, new, I guess, kind of regime changes, you know? Um, But again, I hope it's uh, sustainable so that, you know, as leadership changes down the future, we don't go back to the old ways. You know what I mean?
1: Well, that's where I think we need substantial governance reform at all levels. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, You know, I like, I'm kind of a policy wonk, So, so I I look at, uh, at the, uh, you know, legislation that of mnbc and i can see that you know we need to we need to up our game because we're we're in that um sort of growing pain between a non-profit society and a government and when you look at all the mechanisms for inclusion transparency accountability that are built in say you know the westminster parliamentary system and and other systems because you know they've been through this where you know bad things have happened and they've gone hmm how can we stop that from happening again? So over the last you know hundreds of years, they've put these mechanisms in place of of citizen oversight bodies of ombudspersons of, of all these kinds of mechanisms. Now I'm not saying that we should just imitate the Westminster system because you know we're an indigenous nation, uh, but we can definitely learn from that as we're going through our growing pains because they've already experienced um, you know some of the some of the growing pains that and we can learn how've they've, how they've solved that,
0: you know. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like what we've been talking about with all of these programs, like with your successes and that community's successes and this community, like we should be sharing that information, just like we're sharing this. Um, Mm -hmm. We should be taking what they've, what governance systems are out there and saying, okay, well, what works and what really doesn't. Mm -hmm. So let's take what works and we'll take what works from all of these places and then go, okay, well, how do we put them all together to make it work for us with our values and our traditions? And I think it'll end up being some really twisted up hybrid system, but I think it would be very effective Um, rather than trying to, I guess, like recreate the wheel and, and start from scratch again, (laughs) you know?
1: Well, and and what I'd like is sort of a, a default open kind of governance, a default inclusion kind of governance. You know, we have a a governing assembly that's made up of presidents and the board of directors. And um, I think it's really underutilized and, uh, you know, I, I, I put forward a resolution um, for uh, board expenses to be um, posted on the, the, the um, MNBC website because I think that that's, that's transparency. There's no reason to hide that. Absolutely. Right? And, and also in transparency, um, then there's more of a um, confidence that your government's doing well. Well, you know, if, if they, there's this uh, tendency to sort of not share documents, not to share information, uh, you know, anytime that someone has even the appearance of being secretive, it's like, Oh, what are they up to?
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about that a lot where, you know, let's say you, you do that, you post the, you know, the expenses and then you get caught, Oh, you know, I shouldn't have maybe put that receipt in and, you know, there may be some stuff like that, but on the flip side, at least then you can say, I made a mistake. I'll fix it and we can yeah. move on. Totally. But what you have now is people going, like you said, sitting there wondering. And as soon as people wonder about something, their imagination kicks in. Absolutely. So now, even if everything's totally legit and on the level, you have people thinking you're blowing money on cocaine. You're <laughs> flying first class in private jets. You're, you know, you're doing whatever, but that's because you, people just don't know. And then that's the, the, the dangers of not being as transparent as possible. Um, unfortunately,
1: well, absolutely. Like uh, you know, I, I because I have no access to you know a lot of the information about how you know I, I know that that the uh, audited statements are out and stuff, but I still don't understand how the Métis National Council can get ten percent of all the money, and and where does that go? You know, yeah. I, I I don't understand. Like I, yeah. it, for MNBC, you know, I've been pushing for financial transparency, and there was a um, a provincial budget committee that I was a part of and um you know it, it sort of w- was really slow going because i didn't feel like we had all of the information you know we were getting, yeah. we we're uh despite um signing a non-disclosure agreement uh we weren't given like the the meat and potatoes and 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 the whole idea was to make the budget understandable to the average citizen to so that the average citizen could see it and go oh okay as opposed to you know how come there isn't money for that how come there isn't money for this you know, just if you make it transparent, then people go, oh, okay, I understand now, you know, the, the struggles and, you know, this is allocated to that and this is allocated yeah. to that. And, and we can't just take this and move it here because that's not how the funding works. Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah, So yeah. And then that goes back to that restrictive government requirements. So if they give you money for travel, you can only spend that money on travel. Even if you only need half that money and you found a cheaper way to do things, it doesn't matter. you got to spend that money on travel. And so that's where... I think people are kind of misinformed as to how government money really works. It's not just, here's a check, do what you want. Hmm. But in a lot of ways, that's where I think the sovereignty needs to be brought into these discussions of saying, yes, we need money for travel and for this program and for this and administration. And we need office supplies. We need computers. Yes. All that stuff. Um, but we need to spend that as we see fit, not how the government sees fit. So if you get hundred thousand dollars for computers, well, if we only spent thirty because that 's what we needed let 's take the other seventy move it over to language programs hmm. but there 's not that freedom right because if you did that you 'd be in a lot of trouble <laughs> so and i I think that 's where maybe a discussion needs to be had with um or with governments and stuff about sovereignty on these these funding issues like i 'll be happy to report to you what we did with the money, and if you think it 's completely invalid, then okay, but if you think you know us funding a language program rather than buying brand new laptops every year for everyone is like that. That seems more reasonable to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to have discussions with, with government and, and get that conversation flowing a lot more is that sovereignty, you know?
1: Well, I, also um, you know, yes, things are uh, certain things are earmarked for certain things, but there's also always choices. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I've been sort of uh, really trying to put out there is like, why don't we, Be transparent with where money goes like yes this might only be for for laptops or whatever well or or for 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 tech let's say well you know do we need 30 laptops here or you know is there a possibility that every year um, a certain number of communities can get new laptops because they need it because volunteers have a lot of time but if they don't have the tools then then that time is is not as effective
0: right Absolutely. Or even taking some of that money and say, well, we don't, maybe we don't need that many computers. So, but we can use the rest to fund a program for, for (laughs) kids that are maybe, you know, don't have the money to buy a computer. Maybe we can help subsidize that or something for school or something.
1: Or like the the amount of uh, swag that, uh, that, you know, at AGMs and whatever else is, is being handed out. Um, I mean, you know i've talked to my community about this uh, several times like why not have a backpack program and instead of you know yes. giving it to delegates uh, that backpack can have a water bottle and can have a, a notebook and a bunch of pencils and and boom for sure you, know, you got a, a backpack for school supplies for kids right like there's absolutely there's prices,
0: right but yeah i think that's an important thing i think um you know even if it's allocated i think it needs to be transparent so even if the government says well you got to spend that on travel well what travel did you do because You know, honestly, and from a total outsider's point of view, when you see the audit numbers and it says a million dollars in a year for travel, that to me seems high. (laughs) That seems like they're eating steak dinners, they're drinking champagne and flying on private jets. You know what I mean? Like it's how much travel do you do for a million dollars? So, but if they were to say, okay, but we sent three people to this meeting and it costs us much and we sent five people over to this meeting in this province and we did this and we did then maybe people could at least go well it still seems high but well, it's pretty reasonable i mean well that's that's the thing about um
1: how how to make it understandable right yeah and that, that's my whole thing with with uh, you know this budget committee and, and the whole financial transparency is uh and and, and once again this is how Uh, different levels of government do their expenses is they actually write down okay attended this conference on this day Mm -hmm. and you know if if that was all laid out as opposed to just like million dollars travel well that doesn't tell me anything you know you you could be going to to Paris for a soiree or
0: exactly
1: (laughs) who knows right absolutely Um, so so there's nothing wrong with with transparency I think it just allows people to know what works being done and that it's being done um, you know, effectively on, on our behalf. Cause all, all this is, is truly on our behalf, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it builds trust. I think once people saw where the numbers were, um, you know, there might be a few things you can improve. There always is improvements you can make, but I think for the most part, people would be able to see it and go, yeah, okay. That's, you know, I might not agree, but it's pretty reasonable. <clears throat> I mean, you need office supplies. Okay. Maybe I think you could have spent less, but you spent it on office supplies. It didn't go into some, you know, secret bank account and just called office supplies. You know what I mean? Like, because I think that's a lot of people just kind of imagine is that, oh, well, they're just funneling this money into different, making themselves rich. And it, who knows? Maybe they are. We don't know right now, right? Well, and that's why
1: transparency is so important, right? Because, you know, it's the same thing as, as you know, what they say about uh, justice, you know? Uh, having actual justice, it's as important to have the perception of justice. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, Absolutely, yeah. So um, you know, with transparency, um, you know, even the the perception that things are being uh, accounted for, or the perception that um, you know our our finances are being well looked after, instills confidence in in citizens. Yes, and also. Um, you know, I I wrote a resolution uh, which which passed uh, about um, you know more roles and responsibilities for regional governance councils because there really wasn't a heck of a lot. Like, uh, so um, I, I think regional governance councils have have a very uh, important purpose, and that is to have to be that flow of communication from communities. What's going on? What What do you guys need? What challenges are you facing? Bringing that up to the board level. and and to the different ministries um so that everyone's informed as to uh you know some of the good things that are happening um but but also um like i said all all the uh funding is is about choices and and perhaps there's some choices that can be made like oh wait a minute they need this hey well you know we just got a grant for this program where we can definitely um you know give them some resources for this um and, and also if uh if the um because we don't get that much information from the board about what's going on at mnbc to communities so that um like sometimes the person in our office uh this actually just happened uh recently a couple times that um you know we were helping out a, a new citizen with you know a bursary or a training thing or whatever and um you know the person in our office gave them information and they went away and then came back and said oh no that's not happening anymore this is the new person in that, in that position. And now there's this new program. And so we have, you know, new people to our community that are telling us what's going on. And it's super embarrassing, you know?
0: Ah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I, we're at about an hour here and I don't want to oh. keep you too much longer, <laughs> but um, is there kind of anything you want to let people know about, I guess any other things that we haven't talked about here that you're looking forward to doing if you were elected, so to speak?
1: Well, um, yeah, d- definitely um, a better relationship, like I said, with, with First Nations, because we really need to, you know, sort of, I think, almost start fresh in, in a lot of ways. Um, and also with, uh, with our provincial government. I mean, there's been a lot of focus on, on the federal government with, uh, you know, g- because uh, it was just after the last election, uh, or sorry, just before the last MNBC election that um, the Daniels decision came down which changed the face of funding for the Métis Nation. I mean, that's why we have this housing agreement. That's why we have uh, all this stuff. And, and uh, while there's been a big focus on that, um, we really haven't focused very much on our provincial relationship in the last four years. And I think that's how uh, the Métis Nation of Ontario has done so well, because they have a good relationship there. Um, so and, and I mean, I've been focusing on it because I've been at these reconciliation tables for the last two and a half years. And, yes. and I, I think we need to take care of what's in our own backyard, uh, here in, in British Columbia and, absolutely, and it's just about, um, you know, I, I'm, I, uh, am running with, um, you know, there's a bunch of candidates that all feel that we need this kind of governance reform. We need this grassroots movement. Um, yes. so, you know, I'm, I'm part of a team that are community presidents from around the province. Um, and, uh. We also have um, incumbent um, vice president, Lisa Smith, who's going back in and a regional director from Region 7, Walter Minold, that's running for president. And we all want that grassroots um, movement to go into the board level because we feel that there's nothing uh, stronger than listening to our communities, empowering our communities, because that's what builds a nation.
0: That's amazing. I really love that, that attitude. And, uh, you know, I hope you have some great success in the election. Um, when is the actual election?
1: So it's by, uh, strictly mail in ballot. And okay. so it is September 21st is, uh, is the big day, but, um, the, the, uh, all the ballots need to be into the, um, chief electoral officer's office by that date, not postmarked. Uh, so yeah, September 21st is the, is the big day.
0: All right. Well, we uh, hopefully we can have you on as the newly elected in after September twenty first. I would love that, Darcy. Awesome. Thank well, you so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And uh, I guess to everybody watching, uh, that's it. The jig is up.